Good morning, my name is Matt, and I serve as one of the elders here at FBC. Today we'll be reading from Psalms 69, one through six. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink deep, I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, I must now restore. O oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O Lord God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me. O God of Israel, you may be seated. Thank you, Matt. Good morning. My name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors here at FPC. Good to have you here this morning. We're going to be in Psalm 69 as we continue this summer looking at different psalms uh, throughout uh, this summer. And uh, if you wonder how we uh, pick the psalms, it's the ones I feel like choosing. So, somewhat arbitrary, but we trust God is in, in that. Let us pray and ask God's help as we look at his word this morning. Father, we are grateful you are here with us. By the power of your spirit, you give us the joy of knowing you through your word. Our prayer is, God, that you would open our minds to understand what you want us to understand today. God, that you would open our hearts to be willing to allow your spirit to convict of sin, to build up, to make us like your son Jesus. And we pray, God, that you would breathe life into our weary souls this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm uh, 69, a prayer of help, a prayer of salvation. Verse 1, 2, and 3, save me, O God. The waters have come up to my neck. I seek in deep mire. There is no foothold. I've come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. This is a psalm of help, a, a cry for help, a desperate cry for help, really, written by David to the choir master. It was to be sung according to the lily. So if as you're reading this psalm, the appropriate thing to do is to have the melody of lilies in your mind. So are you doing that? I don't know the tune either. <laughs> the question is, when we pray this prayer, and if you've been a Christian more than 30 seconds, you've prayed this prayer at some point, right? The question is, how does God respond when we really need help? How does God respond when we really need help? What does it require of God to provide the help that we need? And, and, and maybe something that has crossed your mind a time or two is you've come to God for help. What if you're coming to God for help and you haven't been good? Have you ever had that happen? When you come to God for help, you've got something that's really pressing, and so you're coming to God for help because you really need something, and then you remember last week? So what if you really need God's help, but, 
but you haven't been that good, will he still hear you? These are questions that I think all of us have, and these are certainly questions the psalmist had. And so this morning, we're going to look at God's salvation as we see it in Psalm 69. But more specifically, as this psalm is one of the more important prophetic psalms in the life of Jesus, we're going to be spending a lot of time looking at the ministry of Jesus as this psalm predicted. And so this is the title of the message, God's Salvation Isn't Fair. God's Salvation Isn't Fair. Fair. Save me, God. The waters have come up to my neck. This reminds me of a guy in the Older Testament. His name was Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 38, Jeremiah had, had the audacity to tell the people of Jerusalem they should obey God. Now, it was tough. They were under siege from the Babylonians, and he told them, you should obey God and surrender and go over to the Babylonians. And as you could imagine, the people of Jerusalem didn't think that was a smart idea. And Jeremiah said, you should do it, and you should trust God, and you should believe God. And they said, you know what you should do is you should spend the afternoon in the bottom of a cistern. Do you know what a cistern is? It's not the feminine of brethren. <laughs> a cistern is a hollowed out portion of a ground, either out of rock or of very hard clay, that they would dig out and they would store water. This particular cistern was empty, except the bottom of it was still wet. And so they threw him into that cistern, and really the plan was to never take him out. The plan was for him to starve to death in the bottom of this cistern. And he, of course, wanted God to save him. And then in Jeremiah chapter 38, verse 7, we discover who helped him, a guy named Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch. He was in the king's house. And he went up to the king and said, what you've done to Jeremiah is wrong. This is the wrong thing for you too. You can't throw a, a prophet into a cistern and starve him to death. And the king finally relented and said, you know, you're absolutely right. You can take him out. And so Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian eunuch, threw some ropes down with some cloths on him and was able to lift Jeremiah out of the cistern and he saved him. And of course, this reminds me of another Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. This is all going to be connected in a minute. Stay up with me. Stay with me. Are you still here? Acts chapter 8, Philip has been told by God to go talk to another, an Ethiopian eunuch who is riding in a chariot, and he is reading the Bible. In fact, he's reading from Isaiah chapter 53. And the Ethiopian eunuch invites Philip up into the chariot to explain to him what he's reading. Here's what he was reading, Isaiah 53, I'm sure you're familiar. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, he opens his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? His life is taken away from him. Now, the Ethiopian eunuch asked Philip this question. Was the prophet, which prophet? Isaiah. Was he talking about himself or was he talking about somebody else? Now, why would this Ethiopian eunuch ask that question? Because he might have been thinking about Jeremiah. Jeremiah, who also was mistreated and treated unfairly. Is this, is this prophet talking about his own mistreatment or is he talking about somebody else? And what does Philip say? Philip says he's talking about somebody else. And then he goes on to explain to the Ethiopian eunuch 
this prophet, Isaiah, is not talking about his own mistreatment. Now, Isaiah was mistreated, but he's talking about somebody else's, and that person was Jesus, and Jesus died on the cross here in Jerusalem, and he rose from the grave, and he explained to this Ethiopian what had gone on. The Ethiopian then trusted God, believed, got baptized, and was filled with the Holy Spirit. So you have the mistreatment of Jeremiah, you have the mistreatment of Isaiah, and you have the mistreatment of Jesus. This culminates in a parable Jesus told in Matthew 21. You can turn there. We're not going to turn there. Jesus tells this parable. He says there was a landowner. He built a vineyard, and he gave it over to some tenants. And then when he went to collect his fruit, they wouldn't pay. And so they sent servant after servant. Do you remember what they did to the servants? They beat some, they stoned some, they killed some, they made others floss after dinner, all these terrible, terrible things. <laughs> and then what did the landowner say? I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. And if I send my son, they'll certainly listen to him. But those evil tenants, when they saw the son, they said to themselves, hey, you know what? If we were to kill the son, we'll own the land. So what we discover about the mistreatment of these prophets is the mistreatment of the prophets is not the thing. What is the thing? All of these things anticipated the son. The mistreatment of Jesus was the culmination of all of the mistreatment of the prophets. God's salvation isn't fair. Number one, Jesus didn't deserve what happened to him. Jesus didn't deserve what happened to him. The events of Jesus' life His mistreatment, his death, was completely undeserved. Jesus had no responsibility for what happened to him. There was no reason he deserved it. In fact, Jesus' experience was totally unfair. And God's salvation is unfair. Look, go back to Psalm 69. Let's tie this in. Psalm 69, verse 4. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. In fact, mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I restore? O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. Verse 7. For it is for your sake I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my brothers' sons. David here is expressing in his experience how he is being harassed by countless, uh, countless enemies, and this harassment is unfair. If you remember back to David's life, he was pursued by King Saul for years. Remember that? He was pursued by King Saul for For years, and he had many opportunities to kill King Saul, and he chose not to. At one point, a a city that David had, the city of Ziklag, was destroyed by the Amalekites. And all the people who were following him expressed their loyalty to David when that occurred by doing what? They discussed among themselves the size of the rocks they were going to use to stone David to death. That's the appreciation David got. So David had all of these people, these external enemies that he knew were trying to kill him, but also inside of his palace, the normal palace intrigue. Who is lying to who and who is telling and turning what tale? And he felt this pressure of unfair harassment. 
by countless enemies, both known and unknown. And, and this doesn't mean David was making some kind of claim of holiness, that he didn't deserve the difficulty he faced. Look at verse 5. God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. David understands he's not a perfect person. He makes mistakes and he sins. They're well documented in the scripture. But his saying is, nonetheless, the harassment I'm receiving is not something because of what I have done. And so he is coming to God with a desperate prayer for salvation. Save me from this harassment. It's a prayer of salvation. And and what we're going to see here in the life of Christ is this is prophetic of what is going to happen to Jesus. Let me show you, if you don't mind. John chapter 2, verse 13. How does this show up in Jesus' life? The Passover of the Jews was at hand. You understand what the Passover is, celebration of the freedom of Israel from Egypt. They were delivered from Egypt by God's power. Through the Passover, they sacrificed the lamb, and so the angel of death did not kill anybody in the among the people of Israel, but the Egyptians lost somebody in every single home. And so this celebration every year remembered the salvation of the Jews from slavery to Egypt. So it was at the Passover. In the temple, Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. This is a side note. Again, not in my notes. Not that much is. Uh, If you have a view of polite Jesus, you might read your Bible here and realize Jesus is not polite. He's nice. He's kind. He does, in fact, die for you. But really, he just clear. he, he, He made a cord of whips. This guy would not qualify for the welcome team at FBC. We're going to give you a name tag, shake hands. He goes, no, I brought my own equipment. <laughs> Ready to go. Why would he behave this way? Verse 16, he told those who sold pigeons. He wasn't just mad at pigeon sellers. This was intended to be. <laughs> he communicated to everybody, take these things away. Do not make my, fa- my father's house a house of trade. And then his disciples remembered That should surprise you. The disciples remembered a Bible lesson. The disciples remembered that it was written. So they remembered something from their Hebrew school. They were taught at some point in their life, Psalm 69 verse 9, zeal for your house will consume me. So it was understood by the disciples that Psalm 69 was prophetic. Look back at Psalm 69 verse 9. David is praying for salvation from God, and he is imploring God, zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproach of those who have reproached has fallen on me. So while David is talking about his own experience, it is well understood that David is also speaking the experience of his son, the Messiah, who will come because of the covenant promises of God. God promised David that his throne would never end. And that his son's throne would endure forever. And so we see here this prophetic utterance from David. He is saying to God about himself, my zeal, I have zeal, God, for your, for your house. But David's zeal for God's house is nothing compared to his son, Jesus, God in the flesh. This psalm is a prophecy about Jesus. 
Remember, when you're talking about Passover and Jesus is at the temple at Passover, the Passover lamb was a mere symbol, a a foretaste of things to come, which is what? Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the Passover lamb. So can you imagine the Passover lamb at his father's temple, at Passover, and everybody's worried about how much of a profit they're going to turn on their pigeons. Do you see why this might get them riled up? So this this psalm is a prophecy about Jesus to, to remind us that this salvation is a little bit different than most salvation. So think about this way. You're in your house and maybe your house catches on fire. This happens from time to time, usually in the kitchen. And so you call 911 and they send out Medford Fire Department. I assume you live in Medford, right? The fire brigade shows up. And the job of the fire department is to get you out the house, right? You understand this. And it's easier if you just do it on your own. But maybe you can't get out. They'll spray water on it. And their job is they're going to put all kinds of protective gear on. They're going to come out to get you out of the house. So that's what we think of salvation. Passover tells us salvation is different. When Jesus shows up at the burning house, he trades places. What what we're saying about this salvation is somebody's going to die in the house. It's either you or the Savior. It's not someone pulling you out. It's it's somebody switching spots. And so this salvation, so when Jesus shows up at Passover and says, I'm switching spots with you, is that fair? Absolutely not. There's no reason he should have to do this. He's switching spots with us, and at Passover during this celebration, we're selling pigeons trying to make a markup. And so Jesus is saying this zeal consumes him. This is the picture of our Messiah, one who is going to pursue salvation for us even though it isn't equitable. It isn't fair. He shouldn't have to put up his life for us, but his zeal is there nonetheless, but he is going to pursue righteousness in God's ways. Look at verses 10, 11, and 12 of Psalm 69. David again, when I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my, my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit at the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. So when he went to the bar and he put a coin into the jukebox, do people still have those? I don't know. All of a sudden there's a song playing and there's like a group of guys at the end of the bar with a bunch of empties and some they're still working on and they're, they're really having a great time and they start singing about him. They're making fun of him. It's a bar song. You say, look, drunkards sit around and they make fun of me. Now, of course, this reminds us of another guy who suffered in the Old Testament. His name was Job. This This really mimics a lot of Job's phrasing that he complained. He said, I used to sit in the gate and people acknowledged me, but now in my suffering, people who I wouldn't let work with my dogs make fun of me. Now, back then, dogs were terrible. Nobody had pet dogs. And so he said, people, I wouldn't even let work with my dogs now make fun of me. And this is what David is saying. He's saying, look, this, they're making a mockery of me, this suffering. 
Where do we see this fulfilled in the life of our Savior Jesus? It's on the cross, Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 39. Jesus is on the cross here, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. When did he say that? Remember that? When did he say, I would destroy the temple? He said it a number of times, one of the more important times. When? After he made a quart of whips, drove everybody out the temple, he said it. They said, oh, you big tough guy, huh? Big tough guy? Save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders, the religious people, they mocked him. He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Who would he have saved if he came off the cross? Nobody. They were completely clueless. Well, I should say rebellious. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. While David describes his suffering as unfair, which it was, David's suffering was suffering that was horizontal. Other people were making fun of David. He was being made fun of by other people in the same condition. But this anticipates a mockery that is much, much worse because now you have Jesus being mocked by those who he has created. Jesus made all of the people who mocked him. He created all of the people who were there. So this is not a horizontal mockery. This is the creator, the one who is keeping everything held together in the universe, having his creatures mock him, and he's allowing it. This is not fair. God's salvation is not fair. Jesus is being mocked by those he is saving. And again, he's not pulling them out of the building. He's switching with them, saying, I will die in the burning building on your behalf. And then once they get outside the burning house, they make fun of him. If he could save anybody, he'd put the fire out. This is Jesus' salvation. This is salvation that isn't fair to Christ as prophesied by David. Going back to Psalm 69. We're going to do a lot of back and forth this morning. Try and keep up. Psalm 69.4. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me uh, without cause. He echoes this same concern about his enemies down in verse 19 of Psalm 69. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. In John chapter 15, verse uh, 24, Jesus echoes these thoughts. He says this, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now... They have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. This is quoting from Psalm 69. They hated me without cause. So Jesus here is saying, 
The reason the religious leaders hate him is because they want a sign. And Jesus says, I'm not bringing you a sign. What I am going to do instead is testify to you from your own law. Psalm 69, verse 4, that they hated me without cause. What reason did Jesus uh, give the uh, religious leaders for hating him? What What did he have done? Healed the sick, healed the blind, walked on water, hosted a couple of potlucks. There wasn't anything he had done, and Jesus confirms that he is experiencing the same kind of injustice that David is describing in Psalm 69, is there's no reason to hate Jesus. There's no reason whatsoever to hate Jesus, and they have hated him uh, without cause. Because this prophecy anticipates the unfairness that Christ experienced in this world making salvation for those who would believe him. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. Just want you to be mindful of how aware Jesus was of Psalm 69. After this, he's on the cross here in John, 20, uh, John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill scripture, I thirst. This is incredible. When you're dying, what verse will you have come to mind? I mean, you imagine that when you're dying, you're on your deathbed, and the time is nearly there, and you're looking down that, uh, apparently a tunnel with a light at the end of it, I don't know. What verse do you want to have come to mind? Maybe, maybe Romans 8.1. That's a good one, right? There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, that's a good one. So Jesus here is on the cross. He has a verse come to mind. And the verse that comes to mind is, is Psalm 69, 21. And in Psalm 69, 21, in, in prophetic fashion, it is uh, anticipated that he's going to have to drink some sour wine. David says in Psalm 69, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they gave me poison for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. So here's Jesus on the cross, John 19, verse 28. He said, it's all done. Oh, uh, there's one more thing. They haven't offered me that nasty wine yet. yet. And so he said, well, if they're not going to do it, I'm going to ask for it. I mean, he's going to make sure everything is done. He is going to make sure everything is done. What does John chapter 1 call Jesus? In the beginning was the... The Word, the Word was with God and the Word was God. There is not one thing God has ever said that will go undone. And Jesus certainly, with nails in hands and feet, was not going to let one word of the Word of God go undone, even though he was ready to go. Let me get this done. i got to check every box. I thirst. Now, certainly he was thirsty, but the point was, the Bible tells us, why did he ask for a drink? Because he wanted to get Psalm 69, 21 handled. A jar full of sour, sour wine stood there. So he put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch, held it up to his mouth, and when Jesus had received the sour wine, it is finished. He has now completed the work of God to stand in as a sacrifice for sinners. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus was not killed. He died voluntarily. 
Jesus would not stop until all suffering was done. Psalm 69, unfair suffering for David, but it's merely a prophetic, prophetic anticipation of the unfair suffering his son Jesus, God in the flesh, would have to suffer. Because God's salvation isn't fair, Jesus didn't deserve what happened to him. Jesus didn't deserve the mockery. Jesus didn't deserve the cross. Jesus didn't deserve the sour wine. Jesus didn't deserve his religious leaders making a mockery of Passover. Jesus didn't deserve having those that he would seek to save, seek to make a profit off of Passover. Nonetheless, Jesus is the suffering servant who, being mocked by those who he is saving, goes all the way to the end and is going to get the job done. And by God's grace, and because this is what our Savior is like, what's he do? He gets it all the way done. It is finished. And when Jesus says something is done, what's it mean? It's done. It's handled. God's salvation isn't fair. Jesus didn't deserve what happened to him. I'm going to look at one other angle of this through both Psalm 69 and about 37 other references in the New Testament, if you don't mind. Jesus' effort to save us are so great, we might make the mistake of thinking that there must be something about us worth saving. I mean, the guy is working so hard, there must be something, some inner potential. There must be something about me, because certainly the world is about us, right? There must be something worth saving. So, God's salvation isn't fair. First of all, Jesus didn't deserve what happened to him. Secondly, this, we don't deserve what God did for us. We don't deserve what God did for us. Let's go back to Acts chapter 8, just for a moment. Um, you can turn there if you want or, or not. I don't care. Let's talk again about this Ethiopian eunuch. Why was Philip venturing out that God might have the occasion to tell uh, this Ethiopian eunuch the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ through Isaiah 53? What is going on here? Well, Stephen, in the chapter before, had just been stoned to death for giving a sermon. I know, I'll be done soon. Simmer down. <laughs> and then in the beginning of Acts chapter 8 it says a great persecution broke out a great persecution now you have to remember the context of everything and in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 Jesus gave him you will be my witnesses in Judea just hang out here build a Facebook page and, and it's going to spread from there no what's he say you'll be my witnesses in Judea and then Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. So far, where have they been? Up through Acts chapter 7. Judea. And some might argue they weren't, you know, like, let's move on. Let's spread. Not really spreading. So what do we do? Persecution. That spreads it like wildfire. Now everybody's going everywhere telling all about Jesus because this persecution broke out in Judea. So the people of Judea, that is Jerusalem, Israel, where Christ had been crucified, they rejected again the message of the gospel. And so now the gospel is going out, and it's not coincidental that the, the first recorded conversion here, right after the persecution in, in Judea, is this Ethiopian eunuch. Think about this. One thing we know about this guy is Ethiopian, which means what? He's not Jewish. Now, if you were going to go to the temple as a not-Jew, how close are you going to get? 
Yeah, relatively close. You get to the Gentiles' court, but there are certainly a number of things you're going to pose a limiting factor for you really relating with God. Because to, to relate with God, you need access to the temple. And as a Gentile, he's not going to have access. Now, there's something else about this Ethiopian that also indicates he's not going to have access. What's that? Okay, it's about to get awkward. Here we go. He's a eunuch. Do I have to explain that? Google it. I don't want to explain it. It means he has had a procedure done. And the, the Old Testament is quite clear. That would limit even further his access to the temple. This guy has two strikes against him in the religious system. He can't get to the, into the temple and to know God because he's Ethiopian and not Jew. And even more so, he's a eunuch. His body has been marred in a, in a way that in particular excluded him from full access to God. And what's he doing nonetheless? He's reading his Bible. And when Philip explains the gospel to him, what does he discover that is, is good news about the gospel? It's about faith. It's not about your body. It's not about your heritage. Because the Ethiopian is baptized, and he now does not seek to go to a place where God dwells. Now he is the place where God dwells. Can you believe that? So this is what happens. In contrast to the religious elite who would cast out the outsiders because Jewish piety says some get in and some don't. Jesus, on the other hand, says what? You're in if you trust me. You're fully in if you trust me. You're all the way in. There isn't anything that will keep you from getting in. So we have to understand this. We'll see this repeatedly through both the Old Testament and New Testament. It's the awareness of our undeservedness that opens our eyes to the power of Jesus through faith. It's the awareness of our undeservedness. On repeat in the New Testament especially, those who don't recognize how much they need Jesus hate Jesus. And those who recognize how much they need Jesus love Jesus. And what kind of people recognize they need Jesus? Dirty, rotten sinners. And people who are ruined by the world. To be saved, we must experience life that is not deserved through Jesus. We, we can say it this way. Just as Jesus deserved none of his humiliation, we deserve none of the benefits his humiliations grant. To the same degree that Jesus deserved none of his suffering, we deserve none of his benefits. But because salvation isn't fair, we get what we do not deserve when we trust Jesus. Look with me again at Psalm 69, verse 4. Let me show you this. Psalm 69, verse 4. We've read this uh, before. Let me read this again. More in numbers than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. So here we have him saying, I have people who hate me. And David, unlike some of us, I won't, I won't say who, David has a full head of hair. And so what he is saying is this. I have enemies. How many? I have no idea. Because David is not inventorying his hair. What he is saying is I have so many enemies, I can't even keep track of how many I have. That's how many enemies I have. 
So the question is, given our salvation, does anyone understand how significant our enemies are? And the answer is yes, our Savior Jesus, over in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is talking about enemies, those who would oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ. Specifically, he's talking about religious leaders. This is what Jesus says, have no fear of them, that is enemies, your enemies. Nothing is covered, this is uh, Matthew 10, 26, did I mention that? There you go. Nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaimed from the housetops, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Verse 30, ready? Even the hairs of your head are numbered. Now remember, what is he talking about here in this passage in Matthew chapter 10? What's he talking about? He's talking about enemies. Now see, this is why it's important to think about this from Psalm 69. David, when he talks about hair on his head, he's talking about how many enemies he has. Every time you and I have ever read Matthew chapter 10, hairs on our head, we read, Jesus knows the hairs on my head. That's, that's how much he knows me. Now, that is true. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. But now we've seen one part of it. What's the other part? That's how well he knows your enemies. He knows everything you're facing. He knows more about the troubles you face than you will ever know. You've got 10 really big problems. He goes, 10? Yeah, you think your problem, you've got 10 problems. You've got thousands of problems. I'm handling them. He said, fear not. You are more of more value than many sparrows. Anyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. God both knows both how many hairs are on your head and how many uh, enemies that you face, and he cares for you deeply. He knows you deeply, and he is greater than any of your enemies. That's what David is prophesying. He's saying, God saved me from all of the enemies. And Jesus says, I know all of them. I know every single one, and I am handling all of them completely. I know everything you're facing, primarily your need for salvation from your sin and resurrection from your death. I am taking care of all of the enemies. You're just worried about people who might kill you. And Jesus is saying, instead you should recognize God as one who is in charge of all things. Okay, two more things and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Psalm 69, verses 13, 14, and 15. We're not going to have the opportunity to look at all of the verses of Psalm 69, so you'll have to take time later today and read through the rest of it. Psalm 69, verse 13 says this, As for me, my prayers to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. This is David's prayer of salvation, a cry for help. If you wanted to, you could also turn over to Jonah chapter 2, and this sounds incredibly similar to Jonah's prayer from the inside of a great fish. 
He prayed this prayer that I am sinking and God, I need uh, you to save me. Speaking of that, how much did Jonah deserve God's salvation? He didn't. He ran from God. That's why he was in that fish. And where was Jonah going? Nineveh. How much did Nineveh deserve God's salvation? They didn't. They were violent. One of the most violent cultures to ever grace the face of this earth. In fact, Jesus picks up on this over in Matthew chapter 12. Some of the scribes and the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, "Uh, Teacher, we'd like to see a sign from you. They wanted some some magic. They want him to be like David Blaine's street musician or uh, magician. And Jesus answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. Let's get back to that topic. Jesus, not polite. Hey, Jesus, we'd like to see a miracle. You're an adulterer. <laughs> wow, okay, that escalated quickly. It's because he knew their hearts. An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. No sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Prophet Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah, how good of a savior is Jonah? A reluctant, bad attitude savior. But God can use even people like Jonah. There's hope for some of us. Jesus is a better savior. Isn't he? That's what Jesus, he's going to say it in a minute. He gladly went into the belly of the earth. He gladly went. Here's what's interesting about God's salvation to the undeserved. Let's Pay attention to this because it's really important coming from Psalm 69. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. So Jesus walks into the religious leaders and said, the people of Nineveh are going to heaven and they will agree that you are not. That's rude. The Ninevites were not Jewish. The Ninevites did not go to temple. The Ninevites were violent. But what did the Ninevites do? When salvation showed up, they trusted God. So non-Jewish sinners, we call those outsiders, have full access to God because they recognize they don't deserve it. God's salvation isn't fair. We don't deserve what God gives. The reason the Ninevites get it is because they knew they didn't deserve it. That's how they got it. So the first thing he brings up to them is the Ninevites. Second person, verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up. Who's the queen of the south? Queen of Sheba. She went and visited Solomon from North Africa. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. She came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus used two Gentile examples of people who responded favorably to God's message. And now he's standing there with the Jews, the Messiah, God himself in the flesh, and they reject him. Now do you see why he called them an adulterous generation? Because God's salvation isn't fair. We don't deserve what God gives. And if we think we do, we will miss it every time. The undeserving will ask for help 
from one who shouldn't have to help them. And he does anyway. Because that's what our Savior is like. The undeserving will ask for help from the one who doesn't, shouldn't have to help them. And he says, I will gladly switch places with you that you might experience relationship with God forever. Last reference. Look at Psalm 69, 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproach of those who have, who reproach you, if I could read, let me try this again. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And the Apostle Paul picked this up over in Romans uh, chapter 15, verse 24. Romans chapter 15, verse 3 is what you actually heard me say. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written. This is Paul, guy who knew the Bible pretty good, confirming Psalm 69 is written by David, all about who? Jesus. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Paul is telling us, I want you to read Psalm 69 and find hope in Jesus. Jesus took this for us. Jesus wants us to have hope by having us recognize we don't deserve the hope that he gives and recognize that he gives it even though it isn't fair that he, that he should have to. That he redeems sinners who don't deserve it. He redeems no one who thinks they do. None who think they deserve Jesus will find salvation. If you can find someone in the Bible who deserved it and got saved, point them out. You won't be able to. They're not there. So how do we respond? That's what is the last six verses of Psalm 69. It gives us a worship song. Remember the melody is the lily, so keep that going in your mind. As I read Psalm 30 through 36, this is the, the, the praise hymn of the one who has not deserved salvation, who has received salvation at the hand of one who should not have had to help him. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, when the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy, and he does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, and the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion, and he will build up the cities of Judah, and the people will dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. God saves those who seek him. He redeems those who don't deserve it. So what's the reason that Jesus did all of this? Why would Jesus do all this? There is no rational reason for Jesus to do any of this other than his great love for us. There's no other rational reason. He doesn't get anything out of it other than expressing completely his true nature, which is love for us. His love flows out of who he is, not because of our worthiness. 
So think about it this way. If you've been a Christian a little while, and it looks like a couple of you have been a Christian for a little bit. Maybe you got saved, and you're very excited, and then you lived with Jesus for a while, and then you really, really blew it, right? Maybe this is your story, and I don't want to remind you of it, but here we go. Some people have these great testimonies where their worst sins are before they got saved. And, and, and some of us who, are, who got Christ, saved either really young or, or just really bad at being Christians, we have a different kind of testimony. All our worst sins are after we got saved. Anybody like that? Maybe you got saved really young, and, and you were a Christian, and then, boy, you really blew it. There was a couple of years there that, wow, that was interesting, right? Or maybe just something happened. And the, worst, and the worst thing you can remember isn't before you got there. You wish it was, right? You wish it was. And so you feel terrible. I let Jesus down. Here's the great news. Now, bad news, sin causes problems. Sin has consequences. It ruins things and breaks things. That's what it does. Okay? Here's the good news. Jesus didn't save you because he needed you to pay off. He didn't save you. Because he doesn't do very well if you, if, you, if you don't pay off. He saved you because that's what he's like. He wants you to experience the joy of your salvation through holiness because that's what's best for you. Because he loves you and he cares for you. But his plan isn't ruined because you're not very good at being a Christian. Jesus doesn't need you to pay off. It already paid off because Jesus got to express the glory of who he is by saving sinners who don't deserve to be saved. So I don't care if you've been saved five minutes, 10 minutes, 10 years, 10 decades. You never will get to deserve what he did. You never will. Guess what? You don't want to because then you will miss the power of his grace. What are some of those things that we customarily think inclines God toward saving us or blessing us? What are some of those things that you think of that really gets God's vision looking your way? Maybe it's going to church all the time, although I would do that because you get to hang out with cool people like us, or people like us, sorry. Um, maybe praying a lot. Maybe praying in King James, do you do that? You talk normal, but when you pray, you go into these and thous. Maybe memorizing the Bible in translations that are impossible, like the King James. Maybe memorizing large sections of Scripture that nobody else would ever memorize. You memorized Leviticus 15. I don't even know what that is, but you did it. And you know what to do with the hide of the red heifer. <laughs> so now God's going to be inclined towards you. What we need to recognize, Christians, is... To the degree that we try to earn God's favor in our Christian life, we will miss the experience of his divine grace. If you are owed something from God, you will miss that you don't deserve it. The joy of being a Christian is waking up again this morning and saying, his mercies are new what? How many mornings? So how many days of your Christian life will you need God's mercy? All of them. And that's the joy of, of knowing the Lord. And for some reason, we got taught at some point the job of a Christian is to someday not need God's mercy. 
The job of a Christian is to read your Bible every day to find out how much you need his mercy again today. And that's, not a, that's, a, that's a joy. To wake up again and say, God's mercy is still being poured out on me. The more I try to deserve God's grace, the less I will experience it. Okay, last thing. And this, I promise. Living in the community of believers, we also, because we experience this grace from God, we get to extend that to others. See, one of the things that is most difficult about living with other people is they're not like us and they're wrong. And they're imperfect. Have you ever noticed that? Everybody has their own thoughts and it's irritating. And so what we do is we experience this grace and mercy from God that we don't deserve. So therefore we can extend to others what? Grace and mercy they don't deserve. So here's a little diagnostic you can do for how much you're experiencing God's grace. The more I have an experience personally of God's grace, the easier it is to give that to others. The harder it is, the more difficult it is to extend grace and forgiveness to others, I need to recognize that shows me something that I'm not connecting with God's grace the way I need to. The more I deserve God's grace, the more the people around me need to deserve my love. And the more I don't deserve God's grace because I recognize how much he saved me, the more I'm going to be willing to give out love and grace to others undeservedly. So when we find it hard to live with others with grace and forgiveness and kindness, one of the things we ought to do maybe is take some time with God and say, what's going on in my heart that I am not really experiencing your grace the way I ought to? God's salvation isn't fair. Thank God his salvation isn't fair. If his salvation was fair, none of us would get it. Jesus didn't deserve what happened to him, and we don't deserve what God gives. God, we thank you for the kindness you have shown us in Jesus. We thank you for the beauty of your word, how you anticipated and prophesied about the glory of the work of Christ on the cross through Psalm 69. God, our prayer would be that our hearts would be opened up to the glory of your grace. Father, I pray for those who are here today who don't know you and the, and the barrier has been their deep desire to deserve your love. And God, I pray in this moment they would find your grace as their eyes are open to the fact they don't deserve it. But that's exactly it. You give your love and grace to people who don't deserve it. God, I pray for some of us who have been believers for a while and we have become discouraged because we feel like we're not impressing you the way we ought to. God, we pray that you would give us a fresh work of the gospel in our hearts. Remind us that we know you because you love sinners like us. God, we thank you for the love you have shown us in Jesus, and I pray that you will give us the strength to endure till the day you return. In his name we pray. Amen. We're going to close with a song. Why don't you stand up as we sing?